0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how the safety of a major gene editing tool is being debated.
2: When CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered, there was a lot of excitement about it because it seemed to be extremely accurate, as well as not only cheap and easy to use.
1: And I'm joined by Dr. David Fagenbaum to discuss the first ever World Castleman Disease Day.
3: Castleman disease is a rare inflammatory disorder that affects every organ in the body. And the subtype that I have is about as deadly as lymphoma.
1: But first, the European Commission this week hit Google with a record fine of almost $5 billion for cementing its dominant position in internet search by tying it with the Android operating system for mobile phones. On the surface, the size of the fine seems impressive. But does it hide an inconvenient truth? I'm joined in the studio by Ludwig Siegler, the Economist's technology editor, to look at what this ruling really means.
4: Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Ken.
1: What exactly has Google been fined
4: for? We all know Google is dominant in internet search. I think in in Europe, it's 90%. In the US, it's a bit less. But still, Google is dominant, and this is about Europe. And so the commission accuses Google of having kind of cemented its dominance in internet search by basically forcing smartphone makers and uh, telecoms operators to adopt its Android software, not just the Android software, but the whole set of other services or apps Google offers, like Play Store, the App Store, YouTube, all these sorts of things. How,
1: by forcing mobile phone makers to adopt a free operating system, Android,
4: does that help Google's search business? First of all, it's, it's an open source operating system, and that's also a great argument. Device makers don't have to adopt it. But if you want to sell a commercially viable device, at least in the West, China, is a different question, then you have to have Google Play Store and you have to have YouTube. Otherwise, nobody will buy your phone. Amazon has tried to do that. They developed their own Android version, and I think it was called the Fire Phone. That was kind of a complete flop. And also, you have to know, so increasingly, the internet is served on smartphones. It's no longer on desktops. So on the desktop, Google was dominant, and the danger was that it would lose that dominance once kind of computing moves to smartphones. So what it has done, in the eyes of the commission, it basically bundled all its mobile software together and said to telecoms operators and smartphone makers, so you have to take this. And once you take it, you have to take it for all your models. So it's basically paralyzing or cementing its dominant position or moving it to the mobile space. What's the bad practice here? What's wrong by doing that? Because it limits choice for smartphone makers, and that's kind of limits innovation. You have kind of a counterexample to what's happening in the West, which is China, where Google Play, the App Store, and Google's Android is not available. So that's where smartphone makers can do kind of what they want, mix and match, build their own operating systems, and it turns out that the uh, mobile market or the market for apps in China is is much more lively and more innovative at this point
1: so the commission has fined google an eye popping amount of money problem solved or not
4: one could expect that. Yeah, it's a big fine. But if you apportion it over 10 years, let's say, it's less than 1% or 2% of Google's revenues. It's not really kind of, I mean, it hurts. That's true. But I mean, you could also see it as the cost of doing business. Because at this point, at least, it's not clear whether the verdict or the ruling by the commission will change anything in the market.
1: What is Google's response to this? Clearly, they don't believe they did something wrong. Make a case for why looks different from their perspective?
4: In these cases, so there's a certain conduct, which I described, and that conduct has benefits and it has harms. Of course, the commission focuses on the harms, and that's kind of limiting innovation, limiting competition, that's clear. Google's case is that actually what we're doing is good for the consumer because we allow a very familiar experience when when people buy new phones, they kind of they know which type of apps are on there, kind of there's no surprises. It also argues that if you don't do that, if you don't have those restrictions, the Android platform, the operating system will fragment. And that has happened before with other open source projects, one has to say. So that's not completely impossible. But the restrictions imposed by Google are really strict. And it's the big question whether it needs to do that, or whether that actually, the argument it's good for the consumer, is just a smokescreen to defend a practice that effectively, as the commission says, cements Google's dominance in internet search.
1: Ludwig, thank you very much. Thank you again. Next up, gene editing, and in particular, the use of a gene editing tool known as CRISPR-Cas9. Since its discovery in 2012, it has become enormously popular for tinkering with genomes of all kinds, thanks to its ability to make editing cheap and easy. However, the safety of its usage has recently come into question, and I'm joined in the studio by Natasha Loder, The Economist Healthcare Correspondent, to understand why. Hello, Natasha.
2: Hello, Ken. Hello, hello.
1: Natasha, first you have to explain to the generalist. Remind us what is CRISPR-Cas9.
2: CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered in bacteria. It's a defense system, a sort of little molecular defense system that they use to chop up bits of invading viral DNA. And uh, when it was discovered, it was realized that that this little set of molecular tools could be used to edit other things, other genomes. And the way to view it is a sort of pair of molecular scissors with a sort of GPS on it. And the, the GPS can be programmed so you can say to this, particular molecule, you can say, I want you to go to this particular location in the genome and cut. And you can, you can use this basically to make very precise edits to uh, genomes.
1: And it's being used in certain places clinically, but we should be concerned about it.
2: When CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered, there was a lot of excitement about it because it seemed to be extremely accurate as well as not only cheap and easy to use. This led a lot of firms to jump on the technology as a way for developing therapeutics different kinds of medicines, cancer treatments, treatments for genetic disorders and things like that. What has happened in the last year is that there have been a number of papers which have sort of brought into question the accuracy and fidelity of the method and raised questions about whether the tool is as good as we originally thought it was. So that's the backdrop to what's going on at the moment. And sort of this week, there's been another paper which has found that this tool, CRISPR-Cas9, can um, generate all sorts of unexpected changes near the sites where it's cutting DNA.
1: So there's a trade-off to be had between all the beneficial uses and some of the negative side effects. What are some of these negative side effects?
2: One way of viewing this is, as you say, that there is a trade-off between the sort of use of the technology and the benefits and the risks. Another way of viewing this is actually what we're starting to see is the CRISPR-Cas9 tool being really characterized more fully and really understood What's become apparent from some of these studies is that a lot of the effects that we're seeing are likely to be context dependent, dependent on the type of cuts you're making, dependent on the cells you're using. And none of this really says that any of the clinical work should stop at all. What it says to us is that we need to be careful when we're using this tool to make sure that the kind of genetic changes that we've made are the ones that we intended to make. And so... What we see in these studies that we have seen in these studies is not necessarily being replicated in the laboratory. And also remember that before a a medicine goes on the market, the people who make them have to sort of demonstrate that the treatment does what they say it can do. And so the fact that we're finding CRISPR-Cas9 can have some unwanted side effects doesn't mean that it does in all situations, or that when the sort of eventual treatments are on the market, that they'll be unsafe. None of those things are implied by this. it, It reminds me very much of what happened when we got very excited about another technology called RNA interference. And there was this sort of huge wave of excitement. And everyone was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, we're going to be able to interfere with RNA as it moves through the cell. And we're going to be able to treat all sorts of diseases, and everyone started chasing the technology and then there came a kind of oh dear moment when it was realized you, you couldn't get the sort of technology into cells very easily, and so there was a long period it's the trough of disillusionment I mean we see it all the time with technologies, the trough of disillusionment and It should come as no surprise that that's what's happening now, is that you're going to see these papers coming out saying, wait just a minute, you need to think about this. And indeed, we do need to think about these things, these potential problems, and how we're going to solve them or minimize their effect.
1: Natasha, that's excellent. Thank you very much.
2: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
1: So what are your thoughts on the safety of gene editing? or on the European Commission's record fine of Google for almost $5 billion, tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, July 23rd is the first ever World Castleman Disease Day. It aims to bring together all the various people connected with the deadly disease. Though Castleman disease was discovered more than 60 years ago, there's very little known about it and it has no cure. Last year at Babbage, we spoke to Dr. David Feigenbaum. Several years ago, he had been diagnosed with the disease himself, and the medical establishment didn't have any hope for him. So he became his own patient, and from his hospital bed, he was able to identify a treatment that would eventually save his life. But since then, he has led something called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, which innovates around how to do drug discovery for the disease. Dr. Fagenbaum is joining me on the phone to update his progress and tell us about World Castleman Disease Day. Hello, Dr. Fagenbaum.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me today.
1: So first, let me ask, what is Castleman's disease?
3: Castleman disease is a rare inflammatory disorder that affects every organ in the body. Basically, your immune system attacks and shuts down your vital organs. It's about as common as ALS, and the subtype that I have is about as deadly as lymphoma.
1: And why did you decide and others decide to create a day around
3: it? so poorly understood, and unfortunately, it's so deadly um, because so little research has been done. We have started a movement back in 2012 to try to accelerate research and drug development for Castleman disease, and we began really focused on physicians, scientists, researchers working together. What we realized as we moved forward is that we scientists can only make so much progress, and we realized that we needed to bring together the full community, um, and so we brought in patients and loved ones, and and more recently, it's just become clear that, that we can can't do this on our own and that we need to bring in the broader public.
1: Now, one of the interesting ways in which you're trying to tackle the disease is to innovate around the process of innovation, of how you actually study it and come up with cures for it. And you've created the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, the CDCN. Tell us about what that is and why it's innovative.
3: The CDC is taking a, a very different approach to research traditionally research organizations raise money and then they invite researchers to apply for the funding to use it how they see fit it's an approach where you basically hope that the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time it's very much reactive um, our approach we decided to take a, a different one and that's to begin by building a community um, to create a, a, a network of individuals that knew about the disease that they could think critically about the research to be done. And then once we built that network of patients, researchers, physicians, then we went back to that network and we effectively crowdsourced from them what are the research studies that needed to be done. And then we went out to identify the best person in the world to do it.
1: And has there been any successes in this method?
3: We've had a few. I think the one that that I'm most proud of and most excited about. Um, In the early days of the CDCN, we prioritized a particular study, what we call Unlock the Cell Study. And that study used um, various techniques from flow cytometry to immunohistochemistry to really try to to critically investigate cell types and signaling pathways in Castleman disease. And when we pulled together all of those different techniques and pulled together all the data, um, we began to identify a signal within the data. Um, and, And this isn't a signal across all patients, but within a subset of patients, for a particular signaling pathway called the mTOR pathway. And and what we were so excited about as we began to uncover a potential role for mTOR is that There's a drug that targets mTOR. It's called serolimus. And I was one of the first patients studied in this way. I'm a physician scientist and also a patient and decided that I would try this drug myself. The drug had never been used before for Castleman disease, but it's FDA approved to treat patients that have undergone kidney transplants. It's an immunosuppressant and it targets mTOR. And so I started myself on it about four and a half years ago based on um, this crowdsourced, collaboratively developed uh, research and um, I'm really excited to share that it's now been four and a half years since my last relapse and uh, the longest that I've ever gone. And now, based on my early success, we've now... Um Got uh, in the works to launch a clinical trial of the same drug in other patients, and I think that this is what we wanted to do early on. We wanted to identify the right studies, get the right people to do it, and then identify meaningful findings where we could actually apply them to humans and patients right away. With the hope that maybe there were drugs that already existed, so we didn't have to go out and spend 10, 15 years and, and lots of money to develop new drugs, so we could actually use drugs that already exist um, that maybe are approved for something else.
1: David. When we spoke to you last year, you mentioned how the CDCN could be a model for other diseases. Since that time, has anyone picked up the torch and carried it forward?
3: Yes. There are a number of groups here in the States, and and I imagine um, internationally as well, that are taking on what what we and they call the collaborative network approach. It's the the term that we've coined to describe the approach that we take to research of building communities, crowdsourcing, and then recruiting investigators to do research. Uh, And That is one of the things that maybe I'm most proud of is that we're obviously making progress for Castleman disease. We still have a long ways to go for Castleman disease. This drug's working for me and it's worked for a handful of other patients, but we know it doesn't work uniformly across Castleman's patients. We know that there are a lot of work to be done, but the idea that our work for Castleman disease this deadly disease that's horrible could actually have an impact on many other diseases is, is something that I think is really exciting and something that I, I'm, I'm very much interested in pursuing further.
1: That's great. David, thank you very much.
3: Absolutely. Thrilled to be a part of this.
1: If listeners want to support the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network on World Castleman Disease Day on July 23rd, you can go to cdcn.org. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at Economist.com. I'm Kenneth Couquier In London, this is... Oh, you know what
4: it is. It's The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.